Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. You can take a seat. Well, it's great to be with you today as the lights are coming up. I get to see you guys. Uh, it is good that we are worshiping together. Uh, I was just telling the, uh, the band kind of when we were having our little pre-service meeting uh, how much I love corporate worship. And uh, I just want to thank you for gathering and being together um, this is right and this is good. It's something that our souls deeply need. Um, grateful to Will for leading us today. He's interning uh, under Matt uh, all summer and uh, Matt's giving him uh, great leadership and obviously God has blessed Will and uh, he's, a, he's a, an amazing worship leader. So thank you for that. And uh, that last song we sang is actually a song that Matt wrote. You know, Matt's a, a songwriter and um, and I'm grateful for that song. Uh, I think that we need more confession in uh, the church. Um, we are confident people that we can have mercy, that God has shown us mercy in Christ. The gospel is a display of God's mercy. The cross is a display of God's mercy, that God uh, would, would give us a substitute in Jesus, that we, we, we don't have to pay the penalty for our sin, that we have a substitute, and it's the greatest substitute we could possibly have. It, it's, it's the Son of God. It's God himself standing in our place, and so that we can experience God's love and experience the mercy of God. But it, you'll never experience that uh, unless at first you come to terms with our guilt before God. Uh, we'll never experience mercy unless you know that you need mercy. Uh, and so I'm grateful for Matt for putting words to uh, confession for us. And that's uh, something that, that I need, that we all desperately need. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I have the incredible honor to preach this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can go and be opening your Bibles to Exodus 20. But if you don't have a Bible... Um, we have Bibles available for you. You can actually take these. If you don't, if you don't like have a Bible, you can actually take this. And so, you know, you'll have a Bible now. You could take this home with you. Um, but if you do have a Bible and you just forgot your Bible today, you can grab it. They're always on the back table in that little, uh, little lobby or whatever this, the room is between the lounge and here. Uh, so you can grab one. And so if you need one right now, Cody's volunteered to bring a Bible to anyone that needs it. You can just quietly slip your hand up like, oh, I forgot my Bible today. Um, and he'll pass it in a way that no one else will notice. Um, but anyway, uh, we're at Exodus 20 today, uh, and we'll be reading verse 17. So I'm going to read it again as Chaps has already read it, but let me just read it. Um, this is Exodus chapter 20. We believe these words uh, were, were penned, were, were written down. Uh, by the prophet Moses, but more than that, they come to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us. So let's hear together the word of Christ. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. There's a fascinating story in the Gospels. It appears in three of the four Gospels, what's called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called the Synoptics uh, because they tell a lot of the same kinds of stories. And this is uh, one of those places where we see that. And it's a story of this rich young man coming to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus with an interesting question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? Now, 
Jesus, being a Christian, you would expect his answer to be, well, you know, pray the sinner's prayer, right? Or, or believe in me. Like, I am Jesus. I am the Messiah. Believe in me. That's what you have to do to inherit eternal life. That's how you can experience forgiveness and freedom. But Jesus doesn't do that. He actually says to the man, obey the commandments. Now, if you've kind of been around like gospel-centered type churches for a while, you would think immediately that Jesus kind of, you know, needs to go to an evangelism class, right? It's like, well, hold on, Jesus. Like, that's not how you inherit eternal life, right? Like, you inherit eternal life by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you are saved. But, but Jesus here says, well, I'll tell you how to obey. I'll tell you how to get eternal life. Obey the commandments. Well, the guy says, you know, he has a lot of confidence. He hears this. He says, well, great, great news. Because I've done that. I've obeyed all the commandments. You know, I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I don't do any of this kind of stuff. I, I guess I'm good to go, right? And then Jesus says, well, there's, there's one other thing you got to do. You got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the text says then that this man, when Jesus said that, this man walked away sad. He walked away sadly. His, his tone and his posture totally changed. Now, we don't exactly know what this guy had in mind in that moment. But what happened was the word of Jesus came to him. The word of God came to this man. Go sell all you possess and give it to the poor. Jesus said something to him. And when Jesus said that to him, it wrecked him. It broke him. It, it, it took his confidence away. It, it changed his posture. He walked away sad because the text says, because he had many possessions. And this experience, this, this experience that this man had when he realized that he couldn't stand up to the word of Christ. He lost his confidence in light of the word of Christ. This experience is the same kind of experience that Paul, the apostle Paul had. In Romans 7, Paul describes this kind of experience that he has. And I'm going to read this. It's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard passage to, he, to hear. Uh, and so I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Usually I, pa I preach out of the ESV translation. Somebody actually asked me last week, they said, what, why, what Bible translation you use and why? I use the ESV. It's what's called, this is probably not a good aside because I don't want to distract you with this, but the ESV is more true to the Greek and Hebrew that the Bible translations are being given from. But there's other translations that are just easier to read. They're more true to how English people, English speakers read. And so the NLT is one of those. It's a good translation. It's not that it's wrong, but it's, it's easier to read. But I would say for preaching, we need to stay over here with what's called formal equivalency. Anyway, sorry to distract you. I had a geek out moment, as Paige would say. But this is from the NLT, Romans 7. So Paul, he says, at one time I lived not understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, when I really learned the command, the 10th command, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, at one point, I didn't really understand the law, and I thought I was alive to the law. I thought I was alive. I read the law, and it said, you shall not covet. I mean, you shall not commit adultery. And I thought, well, I 
never committed adultery. I'm alive. It says you shall not steal. And you're like, well, I've never stolen. You shall not murder. And, you know, I, maybe Paul did kind of murder. But he said, I didn't murder, murder anybody. I wasn't supposed to. You know, you, you shall honor the Sabbath. I've always honored the Sabbath. You know, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God. Paul's thinking, I, I am doing it. I, I'm obeying everything. He was alive to the law. But then he says this, but then I understood this command. And I, I finally came to understand the law of covetousness, and it killed me. I wasn't alive anymore. It struck me down. I couldn't stand in light of this law, of this command. I like the old King James. It says, it slew me. This law came out, and it slew Paul. It, it struck him down. I was alive to the law, but then that I understood this law. You know, we use this kind of language like right, right now, the Toronto Raptors are alive concerning the NBA playoffs. But next week they will face the Golden State Warriors and they will slew them. You know, they will, they will be slewn or slayed. Um, if you've been with us over the past 10 weeks, we've been talking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, and we've solved this series, The Ten Rules. Now, this is a foundational series. You can't understand Christianity without understanding the Ten Commandments. You can't understand Western civilization without understanding the Ten Commandments. This is the most foundational law code that has ever been given. So it was, it was good and wise, and there was a lot that we have learned uh, from this command. But today we actually, these commandments, but today I think we come to the most convicting of all ten. We save the hardest for last. And obviously we didn't do this. God did this. If you're, if you're alive up to this point, if you've made it through the playoffs of the law, you are about to hit a foe that will likely slay you. This is what Paul is saying. It's the rule of desire. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not cover his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that is your neighbor. And I want to look at a few things. I, it's, I, I, it's really kind of four things, but one point I kind of slammed together. So first of all, when thinking about the law of desire, how do we break this law? Secondly, what do we need to obey it? Slash, how do we get what we need to obey it? And then third, how do we know that we have what we need in order to obey this command? So how do we break it? What do we need to obey it? And how do we get it? And how do we know that we have what we need? So how do we break it? Well, this is the first command, sort of, that, that really goes straight to the heart. The very first command, you shall have no other gods before me, is, you know, an, it's a heart command. But there might be a way to say, well, I say God is my first and one and only. I always worship God. God when I'm involved in some sort of worship or sacrifice. So therefore, I have no other gods before God. You might could say there's an action that's attached to that first command. All of the commands, as we learn in the New Testament, as we've been learning through this series, are heart commands, right? So of course, they're all heart commands, right? The, 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 the commandment against stealing, the commandment against adultery, all of these sins begin in the heart but when they are fully grown, they take physical action, right? The, the, the command against stealing, for example, it begins in the heart with desires that we shouldn't have for something. But a fully grown uh, theft actually requires some sort of physical action. But this law, covetousness, 
this is the, this is the one that can be fully grown. It can be fully grown. We could all right now be totally guilty of the 10th command and there's no physical manifestation of it. It's like a disease that, you, you know, a good disease, the kind of disease you want, right, is the one that you have an actual physical manifestation of. That you, Because then you can go to the doctor and be like, why is my arm turning a different color or whatever it is? Why do I feel this way? The worst kind of disease is the kind of disease that's killing you and you can't even see it. There's no physical manifestation of it. And that's what this law is. Covetousness has to actually attach itself to another command, an, another law, in order to actually be seen. So, you know, it has to attach itself to the law against stealing in order for you to see the covetousness. Or it has to attach itself to the law uh, against adultery, which is why when in giving this command here, the author, God, is kind of walking through a bunch of other commands. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, right? And wife, male servant. So, you know, don't covet your neighbor's donkey and then steal it, right? Don't covet your neighbor's wife and then commit adultery with her. Don't covet your neighbor's house and murder him to get his house. But all of these sins that we've been going over these last few weeks, in, in so many ways, they all begin with a covetous heart. This, this sin leads to all of these other sins, what does it mean to covet then? And it can mean a lot of things, but, but very, very simply, it means to desire something wrongly. Covetousness, it means to have wrong desires. Now, you can desire something that you shouldn't desire that's out of bounds for you to desire, like your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or something like that. But we also covet when we desire something that we should desire too strongly, when we desire something wrongly. You know, it's one thing to get your behavior in check, right? We, we can understand getting, having good behavior. Um, and, and a lot of times, good behavior for us looks like doing something that we don't desire, right? Good diet behavior, for example, means being able to control your actions, what you actually eat, even though what your appetite may actually tell you you desire is something that is ultimately not good for you. This is discipline. But this command has nothing to do with what you do. You could be fully guilty of this command and do the right thing all the time. That's why it's such a quiet killer. And this is why Paul said, when I got this, when I figured out the 10th command, it killed me. It slay me. How, how could I stand against this? In other words, Paul's saying, how can I control my heart? How can I fix my desires? It's conceivable to understand how we can fix our actions, but that's not what this command is about. This command is about your heart. And when Paul understood this command, I believe this is what led him to write what he wrote in Romans 3. I'm not righteous. You're not righteous. No one is righteous. Nobody is righteous, not even the best person you know, not the person, the most disciplined person you know that has complete control of all of their behavior is not innocent according to this law. They can't control their hearts. This is why when Jesus was talking to the rich man, this is why he began with the law. He wanted, to, he wanted the man to see something he didn't know. 
This man came to Jesus thinking he was pure. I've obeyed all the law. Obey the law? Of course. Of course I've done that. Of course I've never stolen. Of course I've never murdered. And then Jesus went directly to his heart, and he was dead. Then Jesus went directly to the thing that the guy desired. What did he desire? He desired his wealth. He desired the security that comes along with his wealth. He went straight to his desire. He went straight to his inordinate desire, the inordinate desire of his heart, and it killed him. You see, the pure heart is what God desires. Blessed are those who have a pure heart. Blessed are those who desire according to the desires of God. Our hearts were made by God to delight chiefly in God. You understand that about yourself? You, you were made by God to chiefly delight, to chiefly desire God. And, and unless that's square in your heart and in your life, your, all of your desires will be out of whack. This is why uh, Augustine, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but Augustine said, you know, my heart is restless until it rests in you. All my desires are out of whack until I chiefly desire God, until he is the anchor of my desires, until he is at the heavy end of my heart. And when God is, not only are we supposed to chiefly desire him, but when God is at the heavy end of our desires, all of the other desires that are good desires fall in line. God is the plumb line. God is the scale. God makes all desires line up. But if God is not in that spot, hear this, something else will be. Something always tends itself down toward the heavy end of your heart. Something always tends itself down toward the anchor of your heart. And if something is supreme in your life, if you are delighting in something that is not God supremely, chiefly, you'll do anything for it. You, you'll, you'll, you'll always do anything for the thing that you delight in most. That's why, because that's how you're made. Because you're made to do anything for God. You're, you're made to obey God. And if you're chiefly delighting in God, even though it may mean great sacrifice, great pain, you'll do anything for the thing that you're chiefly delighting in. But see, our problem is that we're covetous. Our problem is this command. Something else has found itself to the heavy end of our heart. And for most people in Atlanta, for a lot of people in Atlanta, particularly men, it's work, right? Work finds its way down there because it it has all these promises. it's, It's a good idol because it says, look, I'll give you a bunch of money. I'll give you a reputation. I'll give you all of these things. But if work makes its way down to the heavy end of your heart, guess what? You'll do anything for work. You'll, you'll put off everything for work. You'll, you'll, you'll put off worship for work. You'll put off serving for work. You'll put off your family for work. You'll put off everything for work because it's, it's in the heavy place. For some people, it's relationships. You know, a lot of people say, man, if I could just have this relationship, I know I'd be happy. I'd have security. And you know what? If, if, a, if a relationship is in the heavy place of your heart, you will compromise all sorts of things in order to serve that relationship. For some people, it's reputation, Right? You know, having a good reputation is a good thing. Having work is a good thing. Having, a, a re, having relationships is a good thing. None of these things are intrinsically bad, but none of them are dis, supposed to be in the heavy place of your heart. If you have, if your reputation is in the heavy place of your heart, is it's the thing that you most delight in, then guess what? You'll never be vulnerable. You'll never show any weakness. You'll always be protecting your reputation. 
Because what would people think? I've got to keep people's image of me in a good place. When push comes to shove, what is it that you most desire? What is it that you most delight in? What are the intentions of your heart? What is your what did you wake up delighting in this morning? And I'm not asking, what did you do this morning? Some of you may have woken up, you came to church, obviously, you had a quiet time, but what did you, what did you delight in this morning? What gave you rest this morning? What gave you solace this morning? Was it in God's redemptive love? Was it in knowing God? Was it in the beauty of God? Or, or did you get up this morning and check your email to make sure you got another email from work to make sure, at least I'm still needed around the office. And problem solver, Jason Dees, is ready to go. Did you, did you look around your house this morning and say, ah, oh, this is a nice house. I live in a nice neighborhood. I am somebody. I'm okay. Is, is that what your heart is resting in? Where you live, what you do? Or is your heart truly resting in the beauty of God? What did you delight in this morning? The young man comes to Jesus. He was young. He was rich. And he was a good guy. This, wasn't, this isn't like the crazy guy that came to Jesus. This is the guy that is walking around saying, I have obeyed all the commandments. <laughs> this guy had a good reputation. This guy was amazing. And yet Jesus exposed his heart and it slew him. And I want you to hear this. This is what the word of God always does. The word of God, and we're really confronted with it. It comes from the mouth of Jesus. It always slays us. It's an interesting passage, um, Hebrews 4.12. It's a, it's a fascinating passage. It says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the visions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And then here's what it says. This is a, maybe the most convicting verse in the Bible. It says it, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, I, I can fool you with my actions, but what if there was something that discerned every intention, every thought of your heart? And this is a fascinating verse because in verse 13, in verse 12, it says the word as this object, the word of God is like this. But in verse 13, listen to how it switches. It says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Isn't that interesting? Y'all remember school, subject, object, agreement, right? Well, this is subject, object. You might think, oh, the little grammar guard in you might come out. They hold on, hold on here. It, the word of God, him, we need a little work on our pronouns here. No, no, this is subject, object, agreement. What it's saying is that God is the word of God. God is embodied in his word. He judges the thoughts and intentions of your heart. To him we must give an account. And you know, this, this idea, if you really start to understand it, it it's, it's terrifying. It, it terrified people like John Bunyan. John Bunyan, he's a famous Christian author. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote this other little book that's a good book to read. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of a frustrating book. But, um, but it's a good book to read. It's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And it's, it's frustrating because the, Bunyan can never find assurance. He, he never finds assurance in the book. He, he's following the Lord, but he's always terrified by the scriptures. In fact, there's this one section where he lists several passages of scriptures, and he, then he says, 
And I was terrified because these verses did not agree with the goodness of my soul. These verses did not agree with my salvation. And, and, and he lived a long time deeply bothered by this feeling, the, the feeling that's described here of being naked and exposed by the Bible. He once said this very kind of stoic sentence, run, John, run, the law demands. But it gives us neither feet nor hands. You know, the same thing kind of tormented Martin Luther, the famous reformer. He understood something. Luther understood the holiness of God. There's this, if you understand, if you've ever read his biography or know anything about him, he famously got caught in this thunderstorm. He was out in this lightning storm. He almost died on a road. I mean, it's the 16th century. No cover. Huge rain coming down. And so he cries out to God. He's terrified for his life. And, you know, he was in college at the time. And so, you know, he... He might have been having a little, I don't know, who knows what happened like the week before. Luther might have been living it up a little bit in college. He gets, the the thunderstorm comes and he says, he cries out to God and he says, God spare me. And if you do, I'll give my life to the ministry. I'll, I'll go into a monastery. And God spares him and he goes into this monastery. And and Paige and I, a couple years ago, went over there uh, to um, Erfurt where it was and we visited this monastery and, and it just learned about everything that Luther experienced, and you know he slept uh, on this cold stone. I mean, this is Germany. This is the winter. He ate horrible things. He woke up all the time. Here's what Luther understood. He understood that his heart desired things inordinately. He understood that his heart, that, that God was not at the heavy end of his heart. And so you know what Luther tried to do? He tried to, from the outside in, conform his heart. He tried to beat his body so that his heart would desire God like it did. And it never worked. He couldn't change his heart. He tried everything. And he couldn't change his heart. This command, you shall not covet. How do we break this command? We don't break this command by doing anything. We break this command by desiring wrongly. And so, the next thing we need to talk about is what do we need to obey it? If we can't control our hearts, if we break this command by desiring wrongly, what do we need? Well, the simple answer is we need a new heart. We need a new set of desires. We need to desire things that we're not desiring. We need for God to make his way down to the heavy end of our heart. And in order for that to happen, if our hearts are broken, we've got to have a new heart. But here's the thing about Christianity. You know the thing about Christianity that makes it so hard? It's impossible. That's the thing about Christianity. It's impossible. Uh, You know, what if the sermon today was, all right, guys, you need a new heart. Let's pray. Well, that, that is the sermon. That is this command. Paul said, I read this command, and I'm dead. I realized I'm dead. How do we get a new heart? Next point. So how do we get a new heart? Now, when I was a kid, I was told that you got a new heart by praying this prayer, okay? When I was a kid, people would come into town and they would say, look, if you pray this prayer and really mean it, this is how they said it, if you pray this prayer and you really mean it, Jesus will come live in your heart. Now, I didn't understand what that meant, but I was definitely praying the prayer, you know. know, If you you don't want to go to hell and you want Jesus to come live in your heart, then pray this prayer, and they would you know, pray it exactly like this. When I, uh, some of you may have grown up in a tradition where you were told, you know, you want to do well by God? Do the sacraments. 
you know, learn these prayers. Uh, follow the, you know, this, this command. Do this or do that. Do this religious thing. And you'll, you'll be good by God. Now, don't hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong with praying a prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying a sinner's prayer. There's nothing wrong with learning a catechism or being baptized or learning prayer. But listen to this. None of these things by themselves, none of these actions by themselves give you a new heart. They're good things, but what gives you a new heart? Well, there's two things. First, it's something that God does, and second, it's something that, that we do. So it's something God does. Nicodemus, um, you know, I like to think that Nicodemus, if you remember him from John 3, I think that he, in the same way that, that Luther was, in the same way that John Bunyan was, had read some of these scriptures that kind of tormented his soul, that said to him, you, your soul is not in good standing with God. And so Nicodemus, who was this Pharisee, who the Pharisees at this time had all the cards, he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, it's obvious that you are from God. Now, this is the passage of scripture, John chapter three, where it's a famous passage of scripture. Jesus, you know, this is John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world. This is this famous passage, rich, beautiful, amazing passage of scripture. And so we kind of lose something. We kind of miss something that actually is going on in John chapter three because the theology is so good and, and the explanation of the gospel is so good. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, it's obvious that you are a man of God. And basically what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, the only way that you would have known that, Nicodemus, is if you were born again. Now, Nicodemus didn't understand exactly what Jesus was talking about, this new birth, this regeneration. But I think what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, God is doing something in your heart, Nicodemus, that actually led you to me to recognize that I am the one from God. God is doing something in your life, Nicodemus, that is, that is moving you, that is calling you, that is drawing you toward me. You are being stirred toward the things of God. How do you get a new heart? Well, it begins when your heart is stirred by the word of God and stirred by the things of God. When you hear about Jesus and you're moved toward him and not away from him. When you're drawn into him. John Wesley, the great 18th century preacher, describes his own conversion like this. He says, while, um, he's, there was a guy reading this passage, he says, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he says this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Jesus. Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that it, he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And I would say this, that, that if the Spirit of God, if God is at work in your life right now, if God is drawing to you, this is the new birth, if God is bringing about regeneration in your life, then even right now, even right now in this moment, as the word of God's being preached, then your heart is strangely warmed. There, there is a calling. There is something going on in your life that, that's leaning you into this. How do I know this? What is this? Who is this Jesus? So first, it's something that God does. The Spirit draws us to himself by the work of the new birth, by the work of regeneration. But we also get a new heart because of something that we do. There's this great story in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul is in Philippi, and he is... Um, He's at this, he's preaching the gospel. He's doing all these good things. He was called to go to Philippi. It's one of my favorite stories. He's preaching the gospel. He's helping the people. He's doing all these great things. 
And Paul is wrongly arrested. He's wrongly put in jail. And you know what Paul does when he wrongly gets put in jail? He has a worship service. And I love this scene. He's, he's, he's unjustly been arrested. He's unjustly been put in jail. And he starts to have this worship service. He and all the other prisoners are in there. He's preaching. They're singing to God. And in the middle of the night, as they're having this worship service in the jail, an earthquake comes. All the prisoners are set free. And the jailer who sees this happen, realizing that he's going to be held accountable for all the prisoners getting out of jail, decides he's going to kill himself. But before he can, Paul says, stop. We're all here. We're all here. Do not harm yourself. And this guy who was the jailer, okay, he is the jailer holding guard of the prisoners, looks at Paul after he's seen this amazing thing, after he's seen their faith, and I believe after the Holy Spirit has opened this guy's heart to see the truthfulness of the gospel, looks at Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, this is what we need to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, what does this mean? You become a Christian when the new birth work of the Holy Spirit collides with a believing heart. This is what it means to become a Christian. And a believing heart filled with faith is, is a person who sees who they are in Christ. A believing heart is one who has seen the beauty of the gospel. Who, a heart that believes that God really does love you. And he's made a way of salvation for you in Christ, that Jesus has paid the price of your sins and given you a righteous heart. This is when salvation comes. This is how you get a new heart, a new life, when the work of the Holy Spirit draws you in and when you see the beauty of the gospel and believe, and believe. It's something God does and it's something we do. Luther tried to change his heart. And then one day, by the power of the Spirit and by the study of God's Word, he understood Romans 1.17. I'm sure it's a verse that he'd read many times before, but all of a sudden he saw it for what it is. The righteous shall live not by beating their body in a monastery. The righteous shall live not by waking up in the middle of the night and saying a bunch of prayers. The righteous shall live by not by sleeping on a cold stone at night. No, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall believe and look to Jesus. He couldn't make himself righteous, but through faith in Jesus, he could be both counted righteous and he could be made into a new man. John Bunyan had a similar experience. Right after he realized that the scriptures did not declare him good that I said earlier, these scriptures said that his soul was not in good with God, he says this, this famous passage, he says, one day I was walking through a field and this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. Also, I thought with the eyes of my soul, and I saw that Jesus, I saw Jesus Christ at God's right hand. So you see the picture? He, he's, he's giving this middle picture, and there he sees Jesus right at the right hand of God. He was there as my righteousness, no matter what, where I was or what I was doing. God could never say of me that I lacked righteousness, for it was there before him in Jesus. See what he's saying there? He's saying, whatever I was doing, I could be doing good, I could be doing bad, but when God looked at me, Jesus was standing in his way, and what he saw was righteousness. Moreover, I saw that it was not the good state of my heart that made my righteousness better, nor the bad state of my heart that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and for the ages. And then he says this, 
Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was set free from these afflictions. I was set free from these shackles. And my temptations also fled away. From that time on, those dreadful verses of God no longer troubled me. I went home rejoicing because of the grace and the love of God. And we see the same thing as I mentioned earlier, John Wesley. You know what John Wesley was reading or was hearing read the night that his heart was strangely warmed? You know what it was? It was actually Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Luther is talking about his own experience when he really understood God's word in the book of Romans being led centuries later to John Wesley. And this God uses in his life. And he says, I felt that I did trust in Christ. He believed. And he was saved. There's something that God does and there's something that we do. By the power of God and the Holy Spirit, God brings our hearts to life so that we can respond to God's gospel by faith. This is what it means to become a Christian. This is what it means to get a new heart. And when you become a Christian, I want you to hear this. When you really become a Christian, it's not just that you get new actions okay? Christianity is not about behaving better. No, when you become a Christian, when you really become a Christian, it's, it's about getting new desires. It's about desiring by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel, desiring the things of God. Your desires line up with God. It's not that immediately they change, even though sometimes that begins to happen, but it's that over time, through the process of what we call as Christian sanctification, God aligns your desires with him. And this is why we say that being a Christian is all about being free. It's all about freedom. You ever heard that before? People say, Jesus has set us free. Christ will set you free. What does that mean? I mean what, 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 are we, what are we being freed from? Well, this is what it means. It's you're being freed from your own desires. It's you're being freed from your own heart. You're being set free in Christ. And you've heard me say this before, but true freedom is this. You're free when you do what you want to do when what you want to do is what you ought to do. You're free. You're free when you do what you want to do when what you want to do is what you ought to do. If you only do what you ought to do even though you don't want to do it, is that freedom? No, that's not freedom. That's misery, right? Have you ever ever just made yourself do something over and over and over and over again? Eventually, you'll break. Eventually, you'll have a justification to break out of that. You can't control your actions. Eventually, you'll develop secret sin life. Eventually, you'll ruin yourself. Christianity is about not acting better. It's about desiring better. It's about having God at the heavy place of your heart. And this is the work that God begins to do in your heart when you get a new heart by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit and by saving faith. So how do we break this command? We to break this command when we desire wrongly. How many of us desire wrongly? All of us. (laughs) How can we start desiring rightly? We can't. What do we need To desire rightly, we need a new heart. And how do you get a new heart? You get a new heart by the new birth that the Holy Spirit gives us and by saving faith, by believing in what God has done for us in Christ. But the last thing then, you might be saying to yourself, okay, how do I know? Do I have a new heart? You should be asking that question. Do you have a new heart? Do you have a heart that's been changed, that's been saved, that's been called to life by Christ? Are you you just attending church? 
Uh, I read an old sermon by John Newton this week, and he said, church attendance uh, is a, a very small indicator of the human heart. Which, what he's saying is it's good to go to church, but you can go to church your whole life and have a cold heart toward the things of God. You can go to church your whole life and, and never really know God. You can see a lot of Christian things, sing a lot of Christian songs. But how do you know? Well, a couple, there's, there's many ways to know, but let me just give you three to think about as we close. First of all, conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. You know, when you think about a command... You know, when, did, when was Paul saved? You know, when, when, did, when did God's work really take action in Paul's heart? It's when he got slain by the law. It's when he understood the holiness of God. It's when he understood the command of God and he was convicted. And he was convicted. He realized that his heart was not pure. He realized that he needed a savior. So conviction of sin, is that true of your life? That's evidence of a, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. When we sin, we feel it. It's not that we're always perfect, but we know when we've done something that is wrong and we have a desire to please the Lord. We have a desire for a new heart. Second thing, second evidence of a new heart is contentment. We've been talking about this a little bit two weeks ago. Contentment is such a big idea. But here's, here's a good way to think about it. Here's what I mean when I say, are you at least growing in contentment? Is your identity, is your identity as a child of God increasingly satisfying for you? Uh, it's a tough word. Uh, <laughs> but is your, is your identity as a child of God increasingly satisfying for you? Hear that. Or are you hungry to find identity somewhere else? Do you need the identity that work brings? Do you need the identity that a relationship brings? Do you need the identity that a good reputation brings? Or are you really satisfied as a child of God? Is that increasingly satisfying for you? That's how you know you're growing in contentment. And that's evidence of a new heart. And then the third evidence of a new heart is a pursuit of Jesus. Are you pursuing after Jesus? You know, when you, hear, when, you, when you worship like this, does it make you want to pursue him and know him? Does, does it just, just whet your appetite? You know, one of the things I would hope about corporate worship is we just whet our appetites to want more of the Lord, to want more of him, to pursue him more uh, steadfastly and more deeply. Is, is, is coming here and having a problem, is this kind of a check mark thing or is it just like a, ah, now I can go get the Lord. Now I can really go know him. Is he where you're seeking rest and seeking contentment? Are you marked by a pursuit of the Lord? Philippians 2, you know what Paul does there? A lot of scholars think. Paul, in the middle of this letter, the Philippians kind of breaks out into this song that people would have sung. This, this very famous, famous passage in the middle of Philippians 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. People believe this is a song. Paul's starting to quote this song. But he emptied himself. He took on human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This great song. And you know what the next verse is? 
You know what the response to this song is? Paul lays out the beauty of the gospel. He lays out what God has done for us in Christ. And you know what the response is? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If Jesus has done so much, if he's truly so great and valuable, pursue him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Serve him, love him, get to know him, pray to him, pursue him. Is this true of you? Conviction of sin, contentment, pursuit of Jesus. Are you, are you after him? Are you getting to know him? Are you giving to him? Are you serving him? Are you communing with him? And so as we close today, I want to invite you to commune with him and commune with him in a way that he has told us to. Uh, through the elements of the Lord's table. Um, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he went before his disciples and he, and he held up bread to them and he said, and he gave, he gave them a picture of the gospel, a physical picture of the gospel. He said, in, in order for me to display my love for you so that you can have a new heart and a new life, this is, this is what's gonna happen to my body. It's gonna be broken, just like I'm breaking this bread right in front of your face. He said, in order for me to convince you, in order for me to demonstrate to you how much I love you and how much I want you to be mine and how much I want to give you a new heart, this is what's going to happen in my blood. It's going to be spilled out. And so break this bread and drink this cup to remember, to remember the gospel, to pursue me, to run into me, to more deeply know me. And so if you are a Christian, I invite you to the table here in just a, in just a moment to remember to pursue, to remember how deeply Jesus has loved you. Is the Spirit calling you into him? And if he is, then believe, then pursue. Are you being stirred and moved along by the Holy Spirit? Then, and if that's happening, and I pray that it is, then, then believe and pursue. Come and take this meal. Come and declare your faith in Jesus. But again, let this be an appetizer. It's a good thing the Lord's Supper is really small because it's just an appetizer, right? But it's an appetizer. It's an appetizer. Your, your pursuit of the Lord doesn't end when you eat this bread and drink this cup. It just begins. Pursue him. Chase after him. Sat, find satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the clarity of your law, the conviction of your law, the depth of your law, Lord. Some of us may have walked in here today thinking that we were still alive according to the law. I pray that now we see that we're dead and that we need something that is impossible. We need a new heart, something that only you can give, but something, Father, that you do give. By the power of the gospel, by the power of the spirit, by the power of your son, Jesus, you give us an invitation to yourself. You give us an invitation to a new heart where not only in Christ are we counted righteous, but you actually begin to make our hearts righteous by the power of sanctification, by the power, as Will prayed earlier, by the power of the same Holy Spirit that brought Jesus to dead, to, from the death to life, Lord, you bring our dead hearts to life. And so, Father, now as we take this holy meal, as we respond by singing, I pray you would, you would bring our hearts to life. You would give us a new heart, a heart that desires you rightly. 
And we pray this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.